Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Tim Hecker. He's been placed in NPR's list of top 100 composers under 40, but the Canadian artist's heavy and nuanced sound manages to straddle a line between high and low culture. In conversation with Matt McDermott at RA's Los Angeles office, Hecker reveals the concepts and oblique strategies behind his new album, Love Streams, and gives us an insight into how he paints vivid pictures with sound. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Tim Hecker is up next. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. So thanks for coming in today and discussing your music with me. We're ramping up to Love Streams, your debut album for 4AD. One of the things that journalists do, especially with music like yours, I think they oftentimes, myself included, say things like, this is your most vulnerable or human work to date. It's kind of a trope when it comes to you. Do you even care about humanity is that something that's important to you at all (laughs) that's like impossible because if you say no you're like misanthropic or something so i would say default yes because i'm not misanthropic and i like people definitely like more than anything i would say (laughs) but like i don't i'm not really interested in like humanity and capital h in terms of my work or like like making things that are like you know personable or organic or things like that i those adjectives don't always make sense to me. You know, I'm not like a defender of capital H humanity or something like that. I'm just trying to make work that I find interesting and I gives my soul a sense of peace uh, when it's finished. And that's it. But that seems like sort of a glib way to put it when <laughs> sometimes, sometimes no, no, go, you're, on, go on more. Yeah. Well, well okay. So you have it. You have an Icelandic choir, right? Yes. And you're, can you, can you talk about the Icelandic choir that you brought in on this album? For sure, it was a uh, it was a group of singers that uh, that was recommended to me by uh, Johan Johansson, who wrote a few of the arrangements that were on the record, and he knows he's worked with this choir multiple times. I know a few of the musicians from, you know, times in the past, um, and it was just an easy thing. I mean, Iceland's quite a close knit community, and it's one of three different choices of like choral ensembles if you want to use one. And for me, it's like the perfect place to work and just, it felt very easy, you know? 
But I guess what I'm saying is that in another interview, you were talking about the prompts that you gave the choir. Yeah. You're speaking about Chewbacca and stuff like that okay. and, and reverse Latin. So you're, it seems like you're interested in humanity, but in a subversive, like almost uncanny valley. Yeah. I think, I think by saying like sing like a robot or like sing like you're dead or you're encanting some, you know, all souls parade does not mean you're not into humanity. I think that what you're, you're interested in is painting or you're interested in fiction. You're interested in poetry and that's different than capital H humanity. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's a chance to write something. It's a chance to like dream and have a, you know, some kind of vivid picture you make with sound. Um, that's ultimately like what I do personally. That's how I work. That's how I think about it sometimes. To extend that concept, can you speak about the light show? And one of, one of the adjectives that you've used to describe the light show is with these LED lights that can, um, you can describe it better than I can, but can portray any color along with industrial foggers on stage, you're going for a shimmering effect. And is that something that, is it fair to apply that adjective to your music as well? I mean, I think like the light show I'm working at right now, I'm, I'm not sure if it's tenable because it's like so cumbersome. It's so like difficult to kind of like arrange and organize these bars. And it's quite elaborate work to have it work out. Uh, but what, you know, was the kind of impetus was, you know, a bunch of different you know, forms of like art installations or other musicians, like kind of, I would say for one, for one, a major thing for me was always Lamont Young's dream house. Uh, another thing was Lafer Eliasson's fog rooms and another Japanese artist who worked a lot with fog. And I was always into the idea of how can you focus things back on the ear? You know, our society is so focused on visual culture. It's like predominantly overwhelmingly visual based, you know, and the ear to me, like historically has been less and less important in some general sense. So like, how do you engage with people and create like a truly, hopefully if all the conditions are right, like a psychedelic experience, like not in the hippie way, but in a new form of like overload in a way of being transportative that also focus things back on sound. And I find color and the denial of vision through fog helps that. And it's a different way to express a sonic work. And it's almost like a kind of quasi-operatic thing. I've even worked with choral singers who like walk around in the fog with wireless headsets. And that's like another kind of iteration of this form of expression that hopefully brings things back to the ear in, a, in one sense. And is there this idea of kind of brain clearing that's going on in your music. I've noticed that on most of the albums, not on love streams so much, but say virgins, like you have this sort of blast at the beginning and it's almost like, you know, the equivalent of like AM radio noise or something like that to just sort of like clear, clear out somebody's head or like clear out the palette before working in more subtle tones. Is that accurate? Like, yeah. I think, I think it's kind of like the rabbi turning the convert away three times, you know, like, go away, it's not for you, Judaism's not for you. It's like, this is like a kind of just turn away, you know, and it encourages people to turn away. Um, and if they stay, they will be rewarded down the road or something like that. And I feel like I've done that a few times where I just want to like create an evisceratingly unappealing palette, you know? And then after that, there's some reward that comes from the dust settling. And I did that on the last record. 
I like that as like a form of writing, as a way of kind of, instead of ending with intensity, of the kind of predictable ascension of the crescendo building. I like inversions of that or different ways of like playing with structure and predictability. And, you know, obviously thinking about the album as a, as, you know, a f- kind of full length piece, but also not, you know, like thinking about in discrete two minute chunks. Because I, you know, when I, when I edit, when I compose, I write in, you know, very short, very compact, like zones. So it kind of functions on both levels. And I guess you're sort of building that tension on the new record, say, in the last two minutes of Violent, Violet Monumental One or something. It's, it's, it's almost like you have this very simple ascending, like, tritone or something. Yes. like, and, and it's sort of that, along with, like, the sort of pressure, textural pressure in the background, it sort of sounds like a jet taking off. But it's not especially loud. That, I, mean, I, I really like that you're talking about real aspects of the music and like actual moments in a composition that we can get into because I really enjoy that and it's really rare in interviews that people actually talk about the music they're interested in like what food you ate when you're 17 or whatever and yeah like that that particular point you're talking about like at the end of that track for me was a moment where I struggled with restraint um, where it's so easy to pile on layers of sonic density and intensity and make it more high pressure make it more impactful what happens when you pull it away it's something I struggled with a lot and that was actually like what what ended up on that moment was like me pulling away a lot of layers and having like two or three like core tectonic things just simply operating against each other in some like counterpoint way I guess in in general were you working with less elements this time around a big time I mean I like I limited um, a bunch of instruments I had like a palette which was like you know, a bunch of disfigured pipe organs, very bright synthesizers that sounded like they were from, you know, early digital synths. I did use a bit of woodwind. I used a lot of rizzet tones and sine waves. I used a lot of throbbing bass pulse. Um, outside of that, you know, a little bit of Mellotron flute and weird parts, I kept it really limited um, just for my own sanity. Because I, I also like doing the infinite where you like, you know, everything's open and like any sound timber is fair game for me like this work was one of restraint in terms of layers intensity and instrument choices so can you speak about the importance of melodyne in this record and the liturgical music that in a way you use as source material yeah i mean the basic premise was an ouroboros of the voice right like the the idea was like the voice cannibalizing itself. The idea was like from the voice to the voice or, you know, in, in between like some form of like destruction or oblivion or dissolution of that. Like I took, I took literally MP3s of uh, 15th century choral music and extracted scores out of those from analyzing the polyphony of those voices. And then I rewrote those for MIDI instruments for, you know, electronic synthesizers. And I, like, obviously reconfigured, I pitched it down, I slowed it down, I pulled out notes I didn't like. I took this MIDI information like it was, you know, just like a bunch of data you're pulling out and smearing around and using. Um, at some point I got pieces that I liked that came out of those, um, those early ripped choral motifs that were now electronic synthesizer, uh, a lot of processing, a lot of, you know, pounding and, like, disfigurement of those pieces into something totally different 
At that point, I gave it to Johan, who wrote a bunch of choral arrangements for some of these pieces. And then I brought it into the studio and tracked instruments against it. I tracked my own instruments. I put the computer uh, through amplifiers. I resonated against different things and re-recorded it along with choir. And at that point, that was like another turn in terms of writing more against it and like processing and and just channeling things into this like crystal that became a finished piece at some point and at that point there's like choral arrangements that return back that are rooted in this like 15th century beginning but also have at this point nothing to do with it and it just for me it was like interesting because I still think that there's like you know, academics, they're really fixated on, like, the politics of sampling culture, you know, and it just feels like modern music making is so much more advanced now, you know, like, literally taking audio, the audio reference of a, a song as sampled, as, as something you can index or, like, reference meaning off, for me, feels almost, like, dated or something. It's, like, there's su a, such a deeper form of appropriation and transfiguration and transformation and you know, delineation that can occur that doesn't even allow that meaning to be so clear. And I like that. And it's something like I kind of get great joy out of, you know, that like effectively any audio source, anytime, any stream of audio is something you can manipulate, you can pull, you can extract, and you can create something new out of that. And that's like quite fantastical in some ways for me. So what are the contextual questions that people should be asking about what that's you not, did That's here? not my job. That's like the job of the critic. That's the job of journalism. That's the job of writing. I just make work, you know? Definitely don't predispose like any, any interpretation on that. It's like it's my own writing. Um, I like putting that back on, you know, a critic because that's really like I have my own feelings, but they're loose, you know, and they're, it's like, I don't know, they're not really prescribed really hard. And I don't, I really try to strive to make work that's, that doesn't have that like forced interpretation or like some, you know, easy MFA kind of graduation show type of, you know, citing Derrida or something that just is like, okay, cool. You know, it's, you're literally telling me how to interpret this work. and. I like kind of hopefully by making like sometimes absurd, you know, one sheet statements or references to like, you know, Kanye West and like auto tune, like hopefully people see humor in that because it's like literally tongue in cheek, you know. The line was uh, liturgical music in a po <laughs> yeah. post Jesus yes. environment. And it was effectively a joke, but it's also a stab at something real, you know. I don't know. It's just felt like just felt like would Errol Parrott like make the bare voice now in 2016 or would he treat the voice, you know? Um, it's like an interesting question. Well, I have a couple questions. First of all, were you classically trained in any way? Uh, no, I learned sheet music at like grade three when I was playing the trumpet. Like I learned the basic ways of reading music. And then I moved on to ukulele. And uh, that, you know, that was literally the end of my classical training. Like, I was self-taught. Yeah, I wasn't really fostered too much in terms of encouraging music. My grandma had a piano that I played um, on my own, but, you know, completely self-taught, more or less. Yeah, I guess, I guess my question is, when you read music and you're, you know, making sense of Beethoven or, or Bach or something like that, like, you, 
you almost like have that. But I don't, I don't read sheet music. Like I don't, I don't gauge Beethoven or Bach in the form of sheet music. And for me, I look at it. Like I've tried, there's a point where I'm like, okay, I'm going to learn sheet music and I'm going to play the Moonlight Sonata. And I struggled and I did it. And, you know, I could, I could play it really slowly, but it just, I realized that's like, for me, that's a field of expertise. I'm going to keep loose and I'm not going to try to like master. That's like for someone else. And I feel like, you know, I'm an inheritor of the studio as an instrument, um, like a post-digital workspace or something that uh, is something else, you know? And mad respect to that, that form of music expression, notation, whatever. It's just not for me. I guess what I'm saying, though, is that when you... When it's you, needed. Yeah. And also, I work with a lot of people that use it, and it's a necessary language. Um, but it's just not one that I hold, like, expertise in or covet or like I don't know it's maybe in like at some point I'm gonna like go deep into sheet music I've had friends that have done that and you know interesting things can come out of that for sure but I, I guess what I'm wondering is in this case you're making your own sheet music and MIDI out of uh, yes. is it Josquin or how yes do you, uh, so in that instance when when you figure out somebody's music like you almost feel like they're in the room with you uh, to an extent, or you feel yeah. like they're intellect through the music, and it, and it's kind of a, an eerie feeling. Yeah, it's like ghostly traces of something that was like originally part of this, and then became dissociated or something. And yeah, of course. Did that eerie feeling remain as much as you sort of attempted to subvert what was going on? Yeah, because there's little motifs that will come up that for me are like, I remember the root of where that came from, you know? Some of it's like writing with me playing the piano, you know, and it's recorded as MIDI. Some are like things I pitched down two octaves or like seven, you know, semitones or whatever. And some I stretched in half, some I chopped in half. And there's little vignettes, little motifs that I remember their origin, but, you know, became something totally different. Did the interest in liturgical music come out of an ongoing interest in music and sound as a attempt to achieve the divine? I just think it's like how some, like, Coons is interested in, like, you know, Roman figurative expression or something. It's just like, for me, that was like a period I was interested in, like, engaging with in some way. And, yeah, the the religious aspect, not so much, you know, because it's like, I'm interested on like veneers more or less than like depth in terms of like, I want to make depth in the sense that I like want to make something I feel like satisfies me as a sentient human being trying to express myself, but I'm not interested in defending or engaging with like the religious aspects of that. And I feel like the loadedness of like transcendence and religious music is something like interesting and like problematic you know and it, there's no easy answer to it i mean like throughout your career your interest in pipe organs or megaphonics or ending up in the cathedral or like working with like a choir like it, it seems like the, the the idea of sacred space or sacred instruments is at least somewhat interesting well, i just think that like religious musical expression like for h hundreds of years was dominated by like in some ways, religious paradigms, like that's what's left of us, you know, from the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s is partly music that's, that's indexed in relating to, you know, religious institutions. And at some point it became more secular, obviously. So that's like a kind of something you're forced to just comes along with the show. It's like the, the pony and cart or something. I don't know. 
if I'm making sense. If you see it differently, I'd be curious to know, but that's my feeling about it. I guess when you're going into something like Love Streams, you're, it, it seems like a claim to an extent, like a Juno Award or, you know, an NPR like type of top. It seems like if top 100 composers or like whatever that list was, it seems like the acclaim, if anything, like it, it just kind of trips you out a little bit. Like it, it seems like you put more pressure on yourself every single time out. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I, I would say I like try to make like, I try to like make good work that like satisfies my own, you know, being in the world. But I would say it's harder. Like the longer you go, you have like a kind of dialogue with yourself. But in terms of the title, I mean, it's it's just a simple reference to like a Cassavetes film that that came up in like my poetic riffing of like album titles and track titles and just like a stream of consciousness haiku that became like a, a veneer, you know, that made sense at some point. And, you know, you have like triple entendres going on there as well. Like, I, th- I think that, you know, speaking with you, you're always inspired by some new image or a of course, live like leak my whole My whole riff on like against visual culture is like ironic, given that I'm like someone saturated in it, you know, and like I'm saturated in imagery and like imagery in my head. And it's like a fight to kind of put that away and like express myself in this really austere plate at the time when a society almost demands like multimedia, multi-sensory clusterfuck experience, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And that's what you immerse yourself in on a daily basis. Yeah, of course. Of course, man. Like you do, you know? Absolutely, 100%. Are you more inspired by imagery than, say, your peers or other other current music? No. I mean, I, I wouldn't delineate anything. I'm, like, inspired by peers, like, 100%. And... And, like, there's been times where, like, I've, like, gotten a lot out of, like, going to galleries and stuff like that and, like, trying to imagine the, like, sonify, like, equivalent of those things. But it's not really something that is, like, has been predetermined, you know what I mean? It's interesting in making music like yours, though, with you and, say, you know, your close collaborator, Ben Frost. It's a photo of MIT students pushing a piano off of a roof or it's uh liturgical music in in the era of Kanye or or like you're giving people like something to latch on to when they when they approach what is on some level impenetrable music or or music that takes a lot of time to sit with you're giving them a hint yeah is it about that or is it something that you use this in aligning concept going in and both. understanding. It's like kind of both. It like starts as pure music expression with some vague idea of like where it's going to go. But at some point it like dovetails with like visual imagery, dovetails with a cover, dovetails with some vague concept. And then they start to inform each other in the final stages, you know, and it just kind of becomes an object, an object that has like, has text. It has... A cover, you know, these are things that like I talk about pure, pure sound, but I also want to make something that's like holistic and and multisensory, kind of like what I'm talking about. And it does inform. It's like a back and forth play that, you know, really guides the final stages to like closing the book, and then it just becomes something you walk away from. And I enjoy that part so much. It's also a part that gives me like a lot of problems sometimes, you know. Because some of these, like, synergies have been really uncanny, you know, and others, like, struggle a bit. And I think that that's, like, a very fun, weird, sometimes disorientating part of, like, 
finishing a musical project, you know? Tying it all up. Yeah, totally. Tying the bow on it and making it some entity that just sits, you know? You moved to 4AD on this one. You worked with you worked with Jason Liu on scoring his film that premiered at Sundance. And now you also live in Los Angeles. I mean, where... What are your sort of interests kind of going forwards? Like, are you trying to stay off the road a little more? Or, or what are you thinking, like, you know, in terms of these moves that you've made recently? Uh, it's like not a conscious thing. I'm just kind of going with the flow and just trying to keep it light and not too predetermined and too planned out or too strategic. Um, I just think things make sense in a kind of self-evident way that I try to encourage versus like really thinking about it like some two-year plan or five-year plan I really I've been blessed with the ability to make a living at doing this right now I'm like really fortunate and I just think that it'll make sense you know in however it's supposed to be and having said that like I you know I'm interested in like scoring films and things like that but it's not my main desire it's to continue this like form of expression that I really enjoy and have been doing you know there'd be, there was a time like maybe five years ago or when I'd finish a record I'm like okay you know fuck it I'm done with music I'm gonna do gardening or like fuck it I'm done with music I'm gonna do uh, post-conceptual photography or something you know there's a period where I did all the album covers myself and took the photos and I just think that you know I don't know that I don't have the disavowal that I used to have when I would finish an album where I was like pieced out on it, like tapped out. Um, I'm just kind of like taking it a bit more easy. Do you think part of that is that you're not like the sort of lone madman in the studio as much these days? Like, you know, with this immense amount of pressure, like you're, you're with Johan or you're working with Ben, like there, it seems like there's this close cadre and, you kind of like help each other out on records. Uh, you're, yeah. You're necessarily more collaborative. Is that, is that helping you to avoid burnout? Yeah, I don't think, I think I work so slow that burnout's not a thing for me. It's like the pressure of like maybe touring too much would be where you get burnout, but I like keep that at bay. Like I don't play that much. I'm, I'm, I'm like selective on the times I hit the road and probably more so. But I think that my work is more and more collaborative in, in, different ways you know like it's really not me just alone clicking a mouse in the dark you know it's like a really a lot of people that are involved in these types of records in terms of you know just riffing about like what's interesting what works and having people whose taste you trust also having people whose taste like you know confounds your own or, or goes against your own and forces you to think about what you really value you know and and have a bit of pushback, um, you know, from that level, just in terms of sharing ideas with people you trust and enjoy their company and, and feelings with, but also just in terms of, you know, I'm not a good keyboardist. I'm like really bad. I'm like, or like, you know, it's very simplistic. So like when I work with, I started working with uh, different instrumentalists, it became like a lot more open and my role changed, you know, instead of like putting all the keyboard playing myself I would like guide it and like put weird mental puzzles and like you know a bit of direction and just lay back a little bit and take a different role and it's I think it's helped or like made it different in a good way so it seems like you you were talking about mental puzzles that you throw at the keyboardist or 
you know, the choir or something like that. And it seems like you have your own somewhat mirthful oblique strategies that you're working with or that you think of in a dream or something that morning. Like, what are some of the prompts that you threw out on this one? Uh, this one was, you know, in the past, I would, like, show people, like, paintings and stuff like that on, like, an iPad or something or just, like, you know, give them a really simple simple one-page set of, like, rudimentary sheet music and tell them to play off that and, like, listen to the music in the headphones and just riff. And some points, like, I guide them, you know, with, like, stranger things. Like, I'd be like, what if, you know, this... Imagine this huge truck. You think it's carrying milk or whatever, but instead it's just scissor, right? And it just hits you in the head and you ingested, like, 8,000, you know, 8,000 gallons of it. So imagine how slow that would make you and imagine slowing it down three times slower or something. Now play your bass clarinet with that speed or whatever. It'd be like things like that, fun ways of engaging, you know, a development and a becoming in that like in that form of expression, in that form of instrumental um, recording, I guess. I'm learning as I go, you know, and it's like bearing different fruit as it kind of evolves. And you're able to sell those sorts of ideas to classical musicians and stuff like that? Yeah, because, because often these really talented people are bored with executing sheet music as a static rule. You know, a meter, a cadence, time signature, and a scale. And, you know, I think they really, sometimes, if you get the right person, your chemistry is right, it becomes like a really fun thing that they're really enjoying. And that's great for everybody. So, I don't know. I think it works. Or it has so far. Do you have this sort of like highbrow, lowbrow distinction in your head? Like, does the person reading sheet music every day who's able to translate a vision like this, like, uh, do, do you place them on equal ground as like the YouTube rapper or something? I try to like eviscerate that kind of like dead modernist brain, you know? Like, I'm, I like come out of that like exalting a certain like high form of culture that I've like backed away from over time or I don't have it in the same veneration and it's not like about like those kind of like dichotomies anymore it's just about something else I would say and I guess you said in your academic work like the higher you go off the flagpole like the more boring the conversations are and do you feel like it's like if you if you continue to like sort of pull apart your music I would say I would say for me my experience that comment would be different more like the the more rarefied you are in like a doctoral seminar my personal experience is the realm of engagement is more narrow and consensus based and it's not as um, open maybe um, to real otherness true alterity true queerness true outside of your own brain space for me hasn't been psychedelic enough in, in some ways I'm not sure I think that's just my own personal experience, though, I would say. Maybe it's the idea of requisites or something like that. Like, you have to, you have to understand these 15 things in, in order to even, like, sit in this room. And that, that doesn't seem like something that you're terribly interested in as a musician. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. How do you like L.A.? Uh, I love it. Obviously, it's like, well, not obviously, but I do. I've, lo- I've been here in, like, two years off and on and it's like a wonderful place it's like especially this time of year it feels like amazing i've always been compelled by this place since i first started coming here years ago and yeah it's just like i think it's also i grew up in the west coast i grew up in vancouver and i feel like my pace is like a bit slower like in the in the sense that i talk a bit slower you know like in the east coast it was like i'm like a little bit more mellow and i feel like la 
like facilitates that in a really good way. With love streams and sort of the ideas that you're referencing there, um, the ideas of streams and you know sort of doing away with the whole sampling debate in you know a somewhat obtuse way. Why are you still choosing to like release a record in in the traditional sense? Like this isn't necessarily like how you consume music at this point. Like you're you're but you're still going like pretty much. Yeah, I still I still yeah. consume records. I would say that I still am interested in people that make work that is like longer than five minutes. And like I still you know I'm still interested in like discrete songs. But I think that it's it's still for the time being like you know the paradigm of like focused attention on work. And I still do, you know, leak music out in weird ways. And I'm interested in encouraging that, you know. And some of my favorite artists just, like, put shit on Mediafire and um, not reviewed, has no traction, or has, like, an alternate subaltern community that they can, like, sell out, you know, venues. And, you know, a lot of the mainstream press doesn't review it. So, like, I follow that and I get that. But for me, I still enjoy the object creation that I get to do with making a vinyl record. It's, it's, it's a great opportunity and privilege to still be able to do this, you know? One of the things that you've kind of implied is that the technology is catching up at this point to what you've wanted to do for a while. Is that how, is that how you feel? My history is like someone that came out of failed bands in the 90s and like, just like, you know, playing with other people, I, I used a computer to kind of like originally loop and and replace like drum beats of, you know, someone that was too hungover to come to the practice space. And I kind of rose up with the computer's prominence in musical culture, you know, like I downloaded my first cracks of like Reactor One from Radium Software, Radium Hacking, you know, group or whatever. And it was like, my computer would keep crapping out like every time I tried to like layer something more. And I felt like I was always pushing it, you know, and it was never satisfying enough. Or I was always like, in the early days, I was like, you know, getting like really fast computers that were like overclocked or whatever. And now that like problem's gone, you know, and it's, it's good. It's just, it opens up new issues. You know, when you have infinite amount of instruments you can layer, like, what do you do with that? It's interesting. I feel like first wave digital native and musical expression or something like that. Um, Cause that's where my head's been the whole time in some ways. Like I've been resolutely a defender of the computer and musical expression. Um, the studio as an instrument as manifested by the computers like prominence in that role. That doesn't mean I'm a computer fetishist. I actually hate them. I actually have the most ambivalent, I don't hate them, but I have a deeply ambivalent relationship with it. You know, it's something I need to use, but it's a, a wrestling match constantly. It's interesting. I, in terms of sound palette on this one, you're sort of looking back to that early '90s era a little bit, like with warp artificial intelligence comps, like that sort of. Yeah, I think idea. part of it was like a, you know, I've always been obsessed with like really wet, cheap reverbs and lush kind of like digital scapes and stuff like that. And I, I don't think I exploited or went down that wormhole enough, even. But yeah, that was like the intention that I think was not like fully manifested or one of the kind of ideas. I guess one of the last questions that I wanted to ask you, you sort of admitted that this liturgical music for the age of Kanye line is it's supposed to, it's half serious and it's half like a piss take. Do people, do you think that people are surprised sometimes at the amount of humor 
that you infuse your music with or the amount or how funny of a person you are, like where yeah. you're talking about like getting hit by a truck full of syrup or you're on the couch hungover yelling at a choir to like try to sound like Chewbacca or something. <laughs> I mean, I was actually throwing up with that, uh, that morning, but, um, yeah, I, I think that like, I think that comedy or whatever is like something that doesn't translate or it's like something that's like important to me, but I, I don't really try to like have that part of the veneer of my work. Um, um, the levity comes in like little rye jokes or little, you know, little moments of like humor it is like sometimes like serious, like I guess self-evidently serious, but I don't make it that way. Like in some way, like I like to think I have a loose touch with all these things in a gentle kind of way that it manifests as like an object or as a record or whatever. But I think that like levity is important for me and I struggle with that and I try it with that. But I think you, you get the sense of that, that, that there's a bit of like tension with that, that I'm like, it's like when I did a press shoot, I had one where I was like sitting on my motorcycle. It's like a fluorescent green, you know, Kawasaki. And I was just like, mm, should I use this or no? And it was like so complicated. I decided not to, you know, because it just didn't feel right. But those are the kind of like questions that, you know, just come up about like the right touch with things. The uh, deluxe edition of Love Streams will come with a limited edition JPEG of Tim on the Ninja. <laughs> I'll send it to you maybe, but uh, yeah, probably not. <laughs> well, thanks for speaking with Pleasure, me, man. man. Uh, congratulations really nice on the new you. record. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure, man. Pleasure, man.